Good, we're gonna be in Acts chapter five today, so if you have your Bibles, turn there. It's fun to be part of a church where we get to celebrate what God's doing through us, what God's doing in us. We also get to celebrate new babies coming along. And, and I tell you what, Foundry's about to enter into a baby boom. Like, like it's slowly been happening, but we are entering into a baby boom. So if you love children and you're looking for a church home, you found it right here. But also we love celebrating marriages. This is, uh, this, we're just celebrating, last in May we had a marriage, June we got a marriage, July we've got a marriage, it's going on. So people finding their spouses here at Foundry, getting married. We're starting that Foundry dating service soon. It's good. Life's good. I don't know if you've ever been in this position. You've been at home as a kid. You know, maybe you're at that place where mom or dad just got comfortable leaving you at home by yourself or with your siblings. That's always the worst when you get left home with an older sibling, by the way. Anybody remember those days? It's like the tyranny just comes out. If you want to know about evil in the human heart, get left at home with an older sibling. And just like this, I don't know what kind of complex happens. It's just pure evil. And they start telling you what to do and thinking they... You know, like, goodness. And so I was at home, I remember this one time with my brother, Josh. He's 16 months older. And that's just a tough age, you know, because he's always better, faster, stronger than me. And, and so we're at home and we hear a sound like somebody's trying to come up to the house. And it's like, we, you know, this is normal to be in this, we're in a neighborhood, people are around, but something about mom being gone from the house, everything takes on this existential reality, right? If mom's not here and someone we don't know comes up, we could die. Do you know how many people get kidnapped from our street every year? None. But you know how many might? <laughs> statistically, we're due for a kidnapping, you know? Like, statistically, it's time. And so I remember, I remember me and Josh being there and hearing a noise. And so what do we do? Well, we had a couple guns in the gun cabinet, but we don't know the, where the key to that is, so we can't do that. And so we had a couple pocket knives. That's probably not going to cut it. So we upgrade, take it nuclear. We go and grab the kitchen knives, the long ones, okay? I think I ended up holding a bread knife. Just thinking, I'm gonna saw this man's arm off. You come to grab me, give me 45 seconds and I'll cut your arm off, you know? And so we're both ready. I remember looking at each other in this like, just this reality of like, bro, I'm gonna die for you if I have to. I love you and we're gonna make it through this together. And so we're ready. We're like poised with our knives hiding around the corner, ready to shank somebody if they come around. He's going to go low for the guts. I'm going to come over top for the neck and we're, somebody's going to land. We're going to find, we're going to land a solid blow here with our bread knives. And so we're sitting there waiting and suddenly the intruder comes through the door and it's my mom. <laughs> like, hey mom, how's it going? How is, did you get the groceries? What's going on? And suddenly everything was okay again. But I remember that, that moment where we had this thought, we will protect our house and each other. You ever had that moment when you're just ready to protect? I know moms in this room, you live in that moment. If someone messes with your kid, you will take them out. Ladies, you're terrifying. If you're moms, like you kind of expect the dads to be the scary, but no, dads are pretty chill about stuff, but the moms, mama bear will come after you. Can I get an amen from somebody here about that? Like it is true. And you protect what you love. You protect that thing. And so for us, you know, it was get the bread knife and protect the house. But for you, maybe today you're, you're focused on protecting your family. And there's a lot of things in this world that, that's coming for your family. You know, you know, you just feel that. There's just this reality. Maybe, maybe we have people here who serve in the military. Maybe you're about protecting our country. We value that. Thank you for serving. Maybe you're about protecting your money right now. You got some investments? Anybody looking at retirement right now? You got your investments going and you're like, well, I'll retire in another 45 years, you know, and you're 60 right now. You know, so it's like it's just you're protecting what you value. I want to talk today about protecting what we value when it comes to our faith and our church community. 
So if, if you have your Bibles, we're actually gonna go a little bit before Matthew, or excuse me, Acts 5. We're gonna go Acts chapter 4, verse 32. So we're gonna start here, and this describes, coming off what Pastor Danny preached about last week, it describes what's going on in the early church. This is what it said. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them, and they brought the proceeds of what had been sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. What you see here in the early church is a church that's marked by generosity for each other. They're giving lavishly. Just because they love the Lord and they love the church that he is creating, they give lavishly to their community. You see generosity, you see unity here. That they are of one heart and one mind. Now they've just come out of a, a place where they've had a couple of their leaders arrested. And you think they'd be scared at this point and cowering back, but no, they're bold. They're bold in the Holy Spirit right now. So they're continuing forward and they're unified and they're generous and they're testifying to the power of Jesus. They're giving him honor and him praise. We just say Jesus at the center. They're saying Jesus is at the center of everything we do. And God was working through them powerfully. You get this amazing picture of what the church should be like. What you really see is it says God's grace is on them all. And then how do we see God's grace on them? By them giving and sharing among themselves. Here's something we've got to realize as a church community that you are God's grace for your community. God, God has put you here in this, in this church. He's put you in your foundry group. He's put you on your serve team because you are God's grace for those people. Back in this time, a lot of what they were doing is they were, taking, they were selling things and taking their money and giving it to other people because at this time, there are people who just couldn't eat. Only about 10% of people here would have been in the middle class, maybe another four or 5% in the upper class. But most people would have been living just trying to scrape by with food to live off of. And so the people who had a little bit more would sell what they had and come take care of the people who didn't have much and make sure they had food to eat. Now we live in a world today where honestly, no one in this room would be at risk of starving. There's plenty of food around. In fact, if you don't have it, if you can't afford food this month, there's places you can go to get food. We live in an incredibly blessed society where food is accessible. No one's gonna go without food if you, if you just wanna go look for it, go ask for it. There's plenty of food to go around. I really believe that although finan giving financially, helping others financially is part of what God wants us to be for each other, what we struggle with, and somebody can testify to this, is we struggle with emotional and psychological and relational and spiritual challenges. It's way easier for me to take some money and give it to somebody to help them out, especially a friend, than it is for me to take time every single day this week to be with them. It's a whole lot easier for me to, to you know, give some money to somebody or you know, just do something that's really quick than it is for me to go and sit down for two hours and listen to their problems. And can I get an amen on that? Like, to sit down with somebody for two hours and listen is hard. But I really believe that Jesus wants us to be there for each other in the places where we struggle most. That's what we see in the early church. That's what we should have. Here's the reality of Foundry, though. If you look around, you get, there's a, we have more young people. We have more people under 30 than most churches do. We also have a lot more people who are new to church, or at least new to this church, than most churches do. In fact, over the last two years since COVID happened, about 60% of our church is new since then. 
because we're only four years old. We've just, we've got a lot of new people in. We've had people who stopped coming. So we're just a new community. When you enter into a new community or when you're younger, what you start thinking is somebody else should be taking care of the problem. I'm, I'm not an owner here. You start looking around saying, who's taking care of my problem? I want you to hear this very clearly. You are God's grace for your community. You, not the person, and I hope the person next to you is too, but you can't control them. And based on who they are, they probably won't be that much grace. You know what I'm saying? They got their issues. But you are God's grace for your community. In your foundry group, you are the one who should be helping and serving and growing other people. You are God's grace to your community. Where I see this happening so amazingly in our church, lots of places, but one place in particular is in the McCartney and Ayers group. And this, yep, so there's a couple people who cheer from that group and they are, but this group is, is a very cool group, but they do an amazing job of caring for each other. They've gone to each other's houses and helped with home improvement projects. Can I get an amen on that? They have, they have taken care of each other when stuff's going on. They've, they've been part of helping to, to find furniture for groups. They've done all sorts of things, helping people, serving each other in amazing ways. You know why? Because they realize whether they say this or not, we are God's grace for our community. And they're looking at the people around them. I wanna challenge you, if you're here today, that God wants to use you to make a difference in the people around you. Doesn't matter your age, doesn't matter your spiritual background, God wants to use you. And that's what we see taking place here. In fact, we see it in such an amazing way that back in Deuteronomy 15.4, Deuteronomy is a, a, the law, part of the law that God gave to his people in the Old Testament. This would have been a long time, maybe 1,200 years before the early church. But in there, it says in Deuteronomy 15.4 that there will be no poor among you when you follow God's commands. What we see here in the early church is that finally taking place. There's no one impoverished. There's no one in need because everyone is sharing. Can I tell you, God wants us to be that kind of church. There's no need. There's no financial need. There's no relational need. There's no emotional need that's not met by someone else in the church. What we see because of that is this guy named Barnabas. This is the first time we hear about him. He sells this field. He takes all the money, doesn't keep any of it for himself. He doesn't even take a little bit and go buy some, like, some Chick-fil-A on the way to deliver the money. He doesn't even do that. He just takes it all and he brings it, lays it down, says, here's this money for the community. He gives it to the apostles, says, use it as you see fit. He just gives them the money. Here's, here's what we know about Barnabas. To this point in Acts, we've learned nothing about him. All we know is he exists. His name was Joseph, but he had a nickname, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. What you go on to find out, we'll see about Barnabas' life, is he becomes one of the most behind-the-scenes, pivotal characters in the book of Acts. If it weren't for Barnabas, we probably never would have gotten the apostle Paul, who ends up writing most of the New Testament. He's instrumental in Paul. He's instrumental in this, this leader in the early church named Mark. He's instrumental in getting Mark and helping Mark out because he was an encourager, a supporter. And the first thing we learn about him is he's sacrificial. He's sacrificial in helping others. Your spiritual future, the significance of your life hinges right now on your sacrifice and commitment to other people. Because Barnabas takes this step, God begins to do amazing things immediately, but sets him up for a future down the road. So we get this picture of this amazing community. Everything's good. The attack from Satan to try to arrest some of their leaders didn't work out. They're still bold. It's still rocking and rolling. Life is good. And here's what you should expect when life is good and you're in God's blessing. That Satan tries to attack you. We saw this all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Life is good, just like God created it. The serpent comes. The same thing happens today in churches and will happen in your life. Satan's gonna try to come and attack you. It happens here. 
Satan's already tried to attack from the outside. So what does he do? He decides now to attack from the inside. So let's keep reading in chapter five of Acts. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and he brought only a part of it and he laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, a couple of significant things here. The word kept back is one word in the Greek, and it doesn't just mean to hold on to something. It actually has the sense of embezzlement or stealing attached to it. It's financial mismanagement is what it's telling us, that he should have, he had committed to bringing everything, but he keeps part of it back for himself. This word's also significant because there's a, a Greek translation of the Old Testament, and in that, they use this word to describe the sin of Achan, now, some of you are thinking, who's Achan? If you go all the way back to Joshua chapter seven, Achan was a man who was part of the Israelite community and they had taken a town, they had defeated the town of Jericho, like Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Am I with me? No, okay, cool. Nobody else went to Sunday school here? We're that kind of church. And, and they, took this, they took this town of Jericho and God said, I want you to give everything you find there, all the, the valuable stuff, give it to me. But Aiken found some really nice tunics. And you know, like when you find a good tunic, you gotta get it, you know what I'm saying? Like you're there at TJ Maxx, you find the tunic, buy the tunic. So he got, took the tunic, took some gold for himself. And because of that, God's judgment then came on the whole community because he had kept some back. The same words used. So right here, you have a situation where Ananias is keeping back in the same way. And because of that, the whole community is going to be affected. Your sin, when you do something against God, can harm the whole community. Right here we see it. Ananias keeps some of this back for himself. But Peter said, that was crazy. Peter gets some little extra help from the Holy Spirit on this one. Peter somehow knows by the power of the Spirit what's taking place. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back from yourself part of the proceeds? So Satan is coming. Now we only see Satan show up two times in the whole book of Acts. We see demonic oppression. We see demonic power. So you see the evil forces at work. But Satan's name only comes up twice. And this is the only place where Satan is considered an actor, someone doing something. Satan so desperately wants to take down this early church that he is filling the heart of this man to bring about evil in the middle of the community. And so Satan has filled his heart and he's kept back some of the proceeds. It says he's lied to the Holy Spirit. Verse four, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. What Peter points out is how sin is so illogical. There is no reason that he needed to lie about this. If he wanted to keep some of the money, he could have. But what he did instead is acted like he was bringing everything when he was really holding part of it back. And by that, he was lying to the Holy Spirit, not just lying to humans, lying to the Holy Spirit. There's something important to realize here, and that is the Holy Spirit knows everything that happens in a community. The Holy Spirit is aware, he sees it, and, and if this creeps you out, well, he's the creator of your soul, so he's gonna know, right? The Holy Spirit knows everything that takes place. And often we think we can do something on the side, no one knows, no human will know, but the Holy Spirit does. And at times, the Holy Spirit will reveal it to people. I was a youth pastor back in Kentucky and I served under this guy, I called him Pastor Jared. It's one of those guys, I never just called him Jared. It would feel inappropriate to call him Jared. He was always Pastor Jared. You ever know people like that? You, if you don't put pastor in front of it, like 
It feels like you're insulting them, right? Pastor Jared. So I worked with Pastor Jared. When he was a younger pastor, he was serving and he had this man come up to him and the man had evidence that his wife was having an affair. And this is just like the hard stuff to deal with in pastoral ministry. So Jared sits down. I'm trying it out, Jared, without the pastor. Jared sits down with both of them and they talk it through and work it out and kind of come up with a plan. He had, the, the husband was an usher. And Jared says, why don't you take a step back and focus on your family right now? The wife who had had the affair, uh, Brenda was her name, was a Sunday school teacher. And he said, you need to step back as well. And so they took care of it. They came up with a plan of how to move forward. You need to cut off all contact with the guy she'd had an affair with. And you know, we'll figure out how to heal going forward, repair this marriage, restore this family. So that, that's the plan and it's all good. Well, the next day, Jared gets a call from Brenda's mom and Brenda's mom's like, hey, what's going on? I heard this, some stuff's happening. What's going on? Jared's like, I'm not gonna tell you. Like, I'm not just gonna tell you that all your, you know, your daughter's dirty laundry. So she's like, well, can we sit down together? So Jared sits down with Brenda, who'd had the affair, and the mom, and they just kind of talk through. And the mom is heartbroken because her husband had had an affair as well. It just tore up the family. And so she's just feeling this so deeply. And she asks Brenda, she says, Brenda, have you had any contact with this man since y'all had this meeting? And Brenda says, we, we haven't talked. I don't even know his number anymore. We're, we're not interacting at all. So at the end, Brenda's mom says, all right, let's, can we just pray together? And so they stand up and Jared reaches over and holds the mom's hand. They're gonna circle up and pray. And he reaches over to hold Brenda's hand. And when he does, they, their hands touch. He describes it. And Jared, you gotta know Jared. He's like Mr. Conservative. He always wears a suit and tie everywhere. Nothing that exciting. I mean, he's a fun guy, but just, he's not, he's not gonna be crazy. But he said when he touched her hand, there was like a shock that took place. And immediately, he knew all the details of the relationship. He said, sometimes he has impressions from the Holy Spirit. He's not sure if they're, he said, this was different. It was like the knowledge was given to him. And, and, and the, the, the mom was like, are you okay? Because he went white as a sheet. And she had fear in her eyes. Brenda had fear in her eyes because she knew something had happened. And Jared looked at Brenda and he said, you've been in contact with him. She's like, oh, okay, I reached out to him once. And Jared says, no, I know for a fact you have been in contact with him multiple times because the Holy Spirit had revealed this knowledge to him. And because of that, then they had to take further steps with Brenda of discipline. Eventually, she ended up choosing to leave the church because she was unwilling to go through church discipline. The Holy Spirit has the capacity to give insight specifically into what's going on in a community. And this is not something we can control. Jared said it never happened before and has never happened since in his ministry. But the Holy Spirit can give insight. I never want you to read something in Acts and think that cannot or does not happen today. It does. Exactly what happened to Peter in revealing the sin that Ananias had committed, exactly that same thing can happen today and does happen today. So we go on and read what happened. He confronts him about this. Verse five, this is where it gets a little exciting. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. I love how efficient this is. It's like, they were ready for this. You know, they have like a serving, you have like the ushers in church and you got the worship team in church and you have the body removal people in church. We have seven people on this team at Foundry and we are ready to go. Today, if something happens, we got a little place in the ditch back there. We'll roll you up. We'll cover you in concrete so the cops can't find you. We'll put you out there. And they're just ready to go just like that. And they take his body out and he fell over dead. Now, is this unusual? Yes. What's happening here is God is protecting this community. This seems heavy and harsh. We'll talk about it in a minute, why God does this, but this happens. 
All right, let's move on here. Verse seven, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. This is before location tracker existed. You know, if she had her iPhone, she'd be like, why is, why is Ananias just chilling out at the cemetery right now? What is going on? So strange. She doesn't know what's going on. She shows up and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much, for that amount. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out. And immediately... She fell down at his feet. She breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and they buried her beside her husband. This is how CrossFit got invented right here. Just the circuit. You just do it once. You come back and do it a second time. What happened when she sinned, when she lied, not just once, but she lied twice through her actions, she lied and then through her words, she lied to not Peter, but to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is within the church, working within the church. And when you lie about something, especially related to the church, you're lying not just to humans, but to God. This is true about all of our sin. Our sin is never only against other people. It is always also against God himself. This is a heavy thing. Now, it's a little weird, right? Both people died. You think, well, they just didn't give all the money. How big of a deal is that? That's the problem with us. Is we sin against our God and we say, well, it's not that big of a deal. It's just some money. Like God owns everything, right? Couldn't he have found some more money? It's not about the money. It's about what Satan was doing through these people. Just like God's grace comes through people, Satan works through people as well. And God is protecting this community and protecting what he's gonna do in this world through this community. They die. Now again, it seems a little unusual, right? Does this really happen? Well, I was in Papua New Guinea a number of years ago, standing with a couple missionaries. The, the husband and wife I was staying at, the husband had been a construction worker over here, had a construction business. So he went over to Papua New Guinea to build churches. And then they built all the churches they needed. So he had to start teaching the Bible. So he was teaching the Bible now. And at one point they had brought a sawmill in. It could turn big logs into boards. They had this nice sawmill. This is very valuable, especially out where they were, out nowhere. Everybody lives in grass huts. So having a sawmill was a big deal. Well, this guy who's kind of a, a big man, they call him big man around, took this. He's got pretty influential. You know he's influential in Papua New Guinea and you know he's not a Christian because he had multiple wives. And that's how you can tell. He had a number of wives. And so he took this bunch of kids, wife took this sawmill and took it back. And they came and said, hey, you need to give that back to us. And he said, go pound sand or whatever you say in Papua New Guinea. He's like, I'm not gonna give it back. And so Butch, who was the guy who, who I knew, the missionary, he looked back at him and he said, you have, this is not my sawmill you've taken. This is God's sawmill. And God's judgment is gonna come upon you. Now, he wasn't saying that like some Old Testament like curse. There was no thunder and lightning when he said it. He didn't have a staff. He just, just said, this is God's. God's gonna, gonna bring vengeance for this. Boom, left. A couple months later, the man came back and he returned to the sawmill because several of his children and his wife had died. And he experienced that as God's judgment against him and his family for his sin he had committed. Now, was that God? I don't know. I'm not gonna say it was or it wasn't. But what we see throughout the Bible is God is a God of justice. And God is a God of holiness. What is holiness? It is God's character. It is how he is set apart and different from us and different than this world. It is the purity and the goodness of his character. That is God's holiness. And what we see all throughout the Bible is this. God is holy and he wants us to be like him. 
God is holy and he wants to see a church and people who are holy as well. Repeatedly in the Bible, he says, be holy because I am holy. Be like me, have my character. What is holiness for us? It's like Christ-likeness, looking like Jesus. God is holy and he wants you to be like him. Right now in the U.S. church, I'm reading story after story of leaders being exposed for their sin they committed they thought would be private and secret and it's coming to light. Repeatedly, who I thought were great men of the faith is coming out the, the secret sin that they had in their life. God right now, I believe in the US and maybe around the world is purifying his church. He is restoring holiness to his church. He is not allowing us to stay in our disobedience and rebellion and sin. He is coming to transform us by his grace, by his goodness. He's not looking just to punish you. He wants to restore you. If you are living in sin right now, God wants to restore you, to lift you up to a level you could never get to on your own. God's grace is there and ready. God wants you to be holy. He wants a holy people. And here we see him protecting this community. I wanna to talk to you about how you can protect your community. The way Satan will attack us is not probably through external means. I don't think Governor Tate Reeves is about to come and try to shut us down anytime soon. COVID's gone, so it won't happen anymore. That wasn't about Tate, by the way. That was just about stuff in general. The threat's not from the outside. The threat to God's church in America is from our hearts. When we don't put Jesus at the center, when we don't submit and surrender our lives to Jesus, our will to Jesus, we leave an opportunity for our self-will, what the Bible calls our flesh, to stay in and stay involved and begin to lead us. And Satan will exploit that. We don't have to live in fear, but we have to live close to Jesus. The final verse that I wanna to read today is verse 11. It says, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Fear is this deep awe and this deep reverence for God. A healthy fear does not distance us from God, but it embraces his holiness. It embraces his holy character. If we have a fear of God, we don't think, oh, we can never come close to him. We know through Jesus we can, but it just gives us this, this embrace of God as holy. He's not just loving, he is holy love. His love is intended to lead us to this place where we can be holy just as God is holy. I've been reading a book recently. It's a book from 1835. You ever read old books just to feel smart? Yeah. It's like, I don't know if I want to learn anything from it, but I want to look smart doing it, you know? This is my public book. I read this in coffee shops, anywhere people can see me. I was flying in the airport, hold this up. Hey, it's an old book. Yeah, it looks pretty old, doesn't it? 1835, since you're asking. It's a book called Lectures on the Revival of Religion by a guy named Charles Finney. Most of you probably don't know that name. But back in the 19th century, he was a Christian leader. He was a pastor and was really part of some great moves of God. So this book is all about how do we position ourselves for a great move of God? And, and in lecture number three, which is as far as I've read so far, so next week I'll probably preach from lecture four. But in lecture number three, he talks about what we need to do to bring about revival in our lives, to bring about a move of God in our lives. And what he says is this, we need to take seriously the sin in our lives. We need to confess it. He said, don't just confess it like, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin, I'm done. You committed each sin one by one, confess your sin and repent of it one by one. Because that allows you to begin to look at how deep your sin goes. He has a list here of sins. 
If, you, if you're taking notes today, or if you have an iPhone, I want you to pull it out and write down this list because I want us as a church to personally, individually, self-examine our lives around these things. He splits them into two categories. These categories are known as the sins of omission, things we've omitted or haven't done, and the sins of commission, things that we've committed or have done. Now, the truth is all sin is sin we've committed, but omission is just things we failed to do that we should have done that sin, and then commission is sins we, or sins we committed that we shouldn't have done. You guys ready? I'm gonna run through this pretty fast. There's like 28 of them or something. Because you guys are a bunch of sinners. You know what I'm saying? The people who laughed are the holy ones. That's what you know. Everybody else is like, ah, conviction. Don't strike me down. Our goal today is to leave with everyone alive. Okay, can we just, can we get on board with that? But I want you to write these down so we can examine our hearts. I have been convicted by these. The first one is ingratitude. Write down how you have been ungrateful for God and his goodness and his forgiveness? How have you lived in a place of discontent and dissatisfaction because you are ungrateful? Number two, a lack of love to God. He says, think about how you'd feel if you realized your husband or your wife or your, your family no longer loved you. Have you loved God like you should? Number three, a neglect of the Bible. Have you just put aside God's word for weeks on end and ignored God's very communication and his very will for your life? Number four, unbelief. Think about the times where you have charged God with being a liar by not trusting his promises and declarations in his word. Number five, neglect of prayer. How many times have you chosen to ignore a relationship with God through prayer and ignore what he's calling you to do? A neglect of gathering together with other Christians. How many times have you chosen not to gather because you were choosing instead to just do what you wanted to do? Number seven, the manner in which you have performed these duties. Not doing them with a heart really towards God, but doing them just out of obligation. Number eight, a lack of love for the souls of your fellow men. You don't care that there are people around you who are damned for hell, who are going to hell because of the trajectory in life that they're living. A lack of care for missions around the world, for what God wants to do to reach other people. That was number nine. Number 10, a neglect of family duties not honoring and serving and loving your family like God has called you to love them. Number 11, a neglect of your social duties, not serving others in your community at work like you should, not loving them like you should. Number 12, a neglect of watchfulness over your own life, not guarding and protecting your life, not honestly coming to God and being open, not watching over how you live. Number 13, a neglect to watch over your brothers and sisters in the church for not guarding them, not being willing to confront them when you see sin in their lives, but preserving the status quo and taking the cowardly way out by not telling them what you see in their lives that they need to change. Number 14, a neglect of self-denial. You're unwilling to deny yourself to get a, you're willing to deny yourself to get a promotion or to look the way you want to look or to do so many things, but you are unwilling to deny yourself to follow Jesus which is at the center of what Jesus said it means to follow him. How are we feeling? We good? No conviction yet. They're just saying, we're good. Actually, check, check, check. First 14, I've got another 14 or so for you. These would be the sins of commission, things we've committed. Worldly mindedness, number one. Being focused on your worldly possessions, on worldly things, putting those at the center instead of putting Jesus at the center. Number two, pride. 
being vain, caring more about how you look going to church or look going somewhere than caring about the Jesus you go to worship and serve. Number three, envy. The times you've looked around, maybe people you respect and love and you've wished that you could be better or more or different than you are. Number three, a bitter spirit. When you've spoken of Christians and others in a way without love, you've dragged them down. Number five is very similar, slander. You've talked behind their backs of faults, whether real or not, and you've done it unnecessarily and without good reason. This is slander. A lack of seriousness. Now look, we're not called, I'm cracking jokes up here right now. We're not called to be dour and boring, but we're called to be serious about the things that God is serious about. Not to trifle in the presence of our creator, but to serve him with focus and sincerity. Number seven, lying. Any sort of designed deception, any sort of way you were trying to mislead others, it undercuts the very reality of God being true in himself. Number eight, cheating. Getting ahead by cutting corners, breaking rules, doing what you can to promote yourself over others. Number nine, hypocrisy. The times that you have prayed for things you didn't really want, the times you have acted like you're something you're really not, the times you have said one thing and turned around and lacked integrity and done another. Number 10, robbing God. The times that you have misspent your time or misspent your money in ways that instead of bringing honor to him or serving a good purpose have honored yourself and focused on yourself. Number 11, a bad temper. Abusing your wife or children or family or husband or others. Finney says, write it all down. We're almost there. Hindering others from being useful. Maybe others are pursuing God in a certain way and they are growing and they are increasing, but you have hindered them in their faith by your actions. To that, I would add something that's so rampant in our community today, which is lust and pornography is a sin of commission. Whether or not you're addicted to pornography, maybe you have a lust in your heart for someone else or something else. That too is sin. I don't say any of this to beat us down. I say it to allow us to self-examine so we can protect our community. How is Satan going to attack our community? Through your heart and through my heart. And unless we stay in a place of repentance and surrender and openness, then we will lose what God is doing here that is good. And we will miss out on what's ahead that he wants to accomplish. In the church in America today, we lack a focus on obedience and holiness. And we will not be a church that does that. Back in 1970, at the college I went to, Asbury University, there's a massive revival that broke out. Hundreds of people were saved. Hundreds of people were set free from things in their lives, but it didn't just stop there. They sent out hundreds of teams from this revival to other places. What would happen is they'd go to another college and they'd get up to speak and they'd go speak in the gathering. And as soon as they started speaking, the Holy Spirit would fall in a powerful way. Lives would be transformed. I know some of us here have experienced those kind of moments when the Holy Spirit just fell. Nothing needed to be said or done, but the Holy Spirit moved. And this massive outbreak, so many people you talk with, who were in their 70s or 80s, could tell you about how they were impacted by that revival started at a small little school in Kentucky. And let me tell you how it started. It started because one young man got up. He got up in front of everybody and he confessed his sin. That was it. He confessed his sin 
There was an openness, a receptivity, a pursuit of holiness and obedience, and the Holy Spirit came down. God is calling many of us to repent. Maybe coming in today, you thought your life's pretty good, but then you hear one of these. Do you have a lack of love for people who are lost? And you're thinking, oh, I, don't, I don't love them. I've been convicted of this. I was on an airplane this week and there were some annoying people on the airplane. They looked annoying. They sounded annoying. They were annoying. At the core of who they were was annoyance. They're like, I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say it. it felt like they were the mosquitoes of the human world. Why, why did God create this? Sounds brutal, doesn't it? You know what I thought in that moment? Because I'd read this. Lord, I repent of my sin. Give me a love for those people. Give me a love for all people you have created. Right now, many of us are sitting in a place we know we need to repent we're gonna have a time here at the end as we wrap up today for you to come down and pray. I want us to be a church that is pursuing holiness, that is protecting our community by, by being in a place of purity before God, holiness before God, confession before him. And I wanna invite you down in just a moment to come and pray and just, just repent to God and seek God's move through your life. Don't be concerned what others are thinking. They're being challenged by the Holy Spirit just like you are. I want us to be people who, when we're challenged by the Spirit, we respond with obedience. And as we do that, God's gonna move in powerful ways. I believe that God has marked this church and this community to transform our broader community in the Jackson metro area. And I believe beyond that. But it's gonna start when we are open and ready for his move in our lives, when we are submitted and surrendered and repented. God is holy. And he wants you to be holy as well. So what's standing in the way of that right now?